Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Well, as we continue to adjust to a changing world, some things remain a constant. One of those is the tradition started by the late Gay Byrne and carried on by Ronan Collins to play the hymn Bring Flowers of the Rarest, sung by Canon Sidney McEwen on the 1st of May here on RTE Radio 1. Later we'll hear from Ronan about where the tradition came from and how he, for one, would be reluctant to change it. Dr David O'Shea, sacred music historian from Trinity College Dublin, also shares an insight into the origins of the music and its composer. Around the world too, Buddhists are marking Vesak, one of the most important festivals for them during the year. It's a celebration of Buddha's birthday, and for some followers, marks his enlightenment when he discovered life's meaning. We'll chat with Zen Buddhist priest, the Reverend Moyazan Kodo, who's from Galway, about the Buddhist faith and philosophy. But first, there's a long tradition of Irish people emigrating to London. Once there, some may seek support from the Irish Chaplaincy, which is a charitable organisation supported by the Council for Emigrants of the Irish Catholic Bishops' Conference. During the current pandemic, the organisation's offering support to anyone in Ireland with concerns about older family members or friends living in London. The charity based in Camden provides an outreach service to three main groups, Irish elderly people, prisoners and travellers. Paul Raymond is the Seniors Manager and joins me now from his home in London. Paul, welcome to The Leap of Faith. Well, there's a long history of the Irish in the UK and an image that comes to mind is the older man or woman who may have lost touch with family and friends back in Ireland. That's very true. The, the chaplaincy was set up originally in 1957 as a response to the, the massive immigration to, to the UK and beyond. And it very quickly developed from a response to people's spiritual well-being to housing issues, health issues, social issues, and so on. And yes, many of those Irish came over, worked in the service industries, worked in the building trade, and a lot of them are, are those we were set up to help. So we're now supporting them in, in their, their older age. And over those decades, as you rightly alluded to, they have lost touch with family, friends, and their roots back in Ireland. With the COVID-19 pandemic and social isolation, etc., restrictions, how are these seniors faring? Good and bad. I mean, we, we've, in the last six weeks, made great efforts to enhance our, our telephone contact because we do a lot of telephone support, but the core of it is our one-to-one face-to-face in people's homes, in, in hospitals, in care homes. So that has obviously uh, stopped. So we're making sure we really increase and encourage our... Um, volunteers and ourselves to just increase that contact and just to be a a lifeline really, a link for people to feel reassured, to feel comforted and and to have hope. And it's it's a long call for our seniors, it's a long call for a lot of us, but a lot of people, all of us don't know when this is going to end, when restrictions will be relaxed. And the last people in a sense who will be able to have more freedoms will be those in the care homes, those in the hospitals, those who are already frail and vulnerable. So it's it's our services there to try and keep them going um, emotionally and spiritually primarily. We would have an expectation, I suppose, because a lot of people are doing it now, that they would be people would be using technology and Zoom and Skype and various other ways of keeping in touch. Is that being taken up by the seniors that you're assisting? 
Uh, well, we have 185 clients, uh, and it's never been top of people's priorities, even our priorities, to be frank, in, in days gone by, because people wanted to have the, the human contact, wanted to meet people, wanted to chat, wanted to share. Now, obviously, um, the telephone's a wonderful thing. Cards through the door, even standing at the gate and waving to people through the window has, has had its place. So we're desperately trying to work out a scheme that's as simple as possible, using some sim simple tablet technology to make it as straightforward as possible for some of our seniors to press in a few clicks, get, get WhatsApp, get Zoom even, get um, some sort of link to the outside world. And what we're finding in our conversations is that Quite a lot of people are missing their faith, missing be, being able to go to mass, missing able to people coming to, to visit them with Holy Communion. And that is something we're trying to really combat with this little part we've got going. We just three or four of our seniors at the moment, just to try and see if we can get, even if it's remote access to, to services really. Tell me more about the volunteers and the people who actually work with the chaplaincy. What, what draws people yeah, to the we, to the we, project? Yeah, I mean, we, we have in the centre, across the chaplaincy, we have nine full-time staff. There's two of us who work in, in, in the, the, the chaplaincy seniors team, myself and Rory, our outreach worker. But 185 people is, is, is a lot of people to cover. So we have some 50 volunteers uh, on the ground, if you like, and already they've been doing lots of telephone and, and emotional support. But what was so fantastic, we've had people who have um, gone and delivered people's medicines for them, food parcels, even dropping some DVDs, microwaves, anything to help them to combat the situation. And our youngest volunteer is 24 and our oldest is 85. And uh, it's wonderful to have that range of ages, that range of experience and we're so blessed to have so many people who are willing to, you know, at the top of a hat sometimes, jump in their car and take people some shopping or, or medicine. And with that, we're, we're linked in with local authorities, with social services, who will alert us to those who aren't on our books and say, can you help out um, with people in particular dying situations? What's your own story? How did you find yourself in, in, in London doing this in work? In London, I, I as, as you might be able to tell from, from the accent, I'm, I'm um, Liverpool Irish. I, I left Liverpool <laughs> 30 years ago, though the accent is is, is still there. Um, I I was born and brought up within like Irish Catholic circles. I'm very much grateful to my faith upbringing within Catholicism. But as I maybe like other people, as I as I grew up, I kind of questioned some of that. Uh, I kind of went on my own faith journey and very much um, support in my mid to late 20s came back to it, but in a sense of a more sort of social justice sense, which helped me and also helped me to kind of rekindle my faith and, and to see things much more broadly. Um, and so I'm always grateful for those roots. And then I've been with the Irish Chapter now about 11 years and what really attracted me to the, the role was the sense of Catholicism, the sense of that social justice reflecting Catholic social teaching. Um, so a sense to put that faith very much into practice. What's the silence of now? 
That was a, a, a comment that we had a few years ago where one of our um, older ladies who had no visitors apart from us each week would said, I love your visit. It breaks the sands of now for lots of lots of people, not just older people. Um, all they've got is the now. Um, and we all only have the now and the present moment. And that can be a quite a scary and lonely place. So if we can, again, shine some hope into that and bring some light into that, it's kind of breaking that silence and that sort of quiet sadness and, you know, bringing a bit of light. But that was coming from a deep place within that lady. Paul Raymond from the Irish Chaplaincy in London. Thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. No, thank you for having us. Thank you. God bless. And you can find contact information for the Irish Chaplaincy in London on our website at rte.ie forward slash leap. It's May 1st and a long-standing tradition, first started by the late Gay Byrne, is the playing of the hymn Bring Flowers of the Rarest, also known as Queen of the May, sung by Canon Sidney McEwen. Ronan Collins played it earlier today on his Lunchtime Music Show. Well, Canon McEwen was a Scottish priest and a professional singer, ordained in 1944. He was an RAF chaplain and ambulance driver in the Second World War. In Ireland, he's better known for this song. Flowers of the rarest bring blossoms the fairest from garden and woodland and hillside and dale. Our full hearts are swelling, our glad voices telling the praise of the loveliest flower of the bay. Canon Sidney McEwen and bring flowers of the rarest. Something now of a tradition on RTE Radio 1 and a man who's carrying that tradition on further is our own Ronan Collins. Ronan, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Tell me your link to this particular song. It goes back to when Gayburn was finishing on daytime radio and he played, as he had done for many years before, on the 1st of May, Canon Sidney McEwen, bring flowers of the rarest. And he said, well, that'll be the last time I'll be playing that, but I'm sure Ronan will pick it up and run with it, was exactly what he said. And, uh, well, I mean, if Gayborn gives you the instruction to pick it, pick it up and run with it, yeah. you do that. And I did that with great gusto uh, the following 1st of May, and I've been playing it ever since. And even... If I wasn't on air on the 1st of May, I've played it on the preceding Friday or the following Monday because I had to. Tell me more about that having to, because there, there is no doubt about it. Your listeners are quite specific, not only about the song itself, but even who's singing it. Indeed, because, I mean, one of the golden rules of, you know, being a DJ, which I've been for years, is that when you find a classic oldie to play, you play it and then you don't play it again for a long, long time because that diminishes the good of the thing. But with uh, this particular song, because it is the May Day song or it's perceived as that, um, the demand for it is quite extraordinary. And trust me, it is because of that demand that I continue to play it. Uh, and also, I suppose, to observe the tradition. Um, I'm not a great lover 
of uh, mixing uh, religion and music in a popular music daytime program. But the listeners know what they like. They know what they want. And by Jove, do they let you know. I mean, I am talking about having 150 to 200 requests specifically for the play today. And of course, and that, that, that's a big demand. And you would, of course, have played it earlier on today. Um, uh, can I ask you a direct question then, Ronan? Do you like the tune itself, the song? I base uh, what I play on my program generally, uh, if I was to base it on what I like and what I don't like, um, it would be a sad day uh, for me. Uh, I am very much uh, believe in the demand of what the listeners like and what they choose. And the listeners choose this. I wouldn't. I don't like it. I just don't like the style of it. I don't like the sound of it. I don't like the man's voice. But on the plus side, uh, there is something intriguing about the song. It also shows, and I think at the moment illustrates, you know, a particular desire for something as nostalgic as this. I mean, it immediately conjures up an image of May Day processions through housing estates, um, boys and girls in their Holy Communion outfits, and big banners, and people singing with great gusto, led by the local parish priest, or maybe the bishop. Um, And it brings us back to a very different time. And it's extraordinary that people would hark back to an Ireland, perhaps, of the 1950s and 1960s, which was a dark place at the time, and that they'd, in these dark times, they'd hark back to those dark times because nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Nostalgia is the coming thing, and the pictures are much brighter in nostalgia than they were at the time. So it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting meeting on this 1st of May with uh, Bring Flowers of the Rarest, but harking back to a time maybe 60 years, 70 years ago in Ireland, a different Ireland. So in the meantime, you're, you're happy to carry that tradition on further? Absolutely. I mean, um, okay, I've publicly admitted I don't like the song and I don't like the singer. But as I said to you, if I didn't carry the tradition and if I based everything that I played on my radio program on whether I liked it or not, it would be a very boring world. No, I'm very pleased to do it. And uh, whether the people who enjoy it are nine months, nine years, are 90 years, and there are many, many of those listening now, um, the tradition is there and it, it reinforces the power of radio. If, that, if we can bring that three minutes and 20 seconds of that song to somebody and it brings a smile to their face or makes them feel closer to, to their spiritual being or whatever it is, well, then that's, that's what it's all about. Oh, absolutely. I, I would hope that I'm allowed to continue the tradition. I hope that I'm allowed to continue. <laughs> and then we'll include the tradition. Ronan Collins, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Queen of the 
what of the story of this hymn and the music? To find out more, joining me from his home and at his piano is Dr. David O'Shea, a sacred music historian in Trinity College, Dublin, and organist at Sanford Parish Church in Ranelagh and St. Philip's in Milltown. David, thank you for joining us. Could you set the song in an historical context for us? So the tune originates uh, in the second half of the 19th century. It's attributed to a composer called Mary E. Walsh. Now, we know very little about Mary E. Walsh, except that she was from the USA and she lived in the second half of the 19th century. And the one piece of music that we associate with her, um, that she was quite well known for in her day, is a piece called the Black Hawk Waltz, which is named after... Um, the Native American chief, Black Hawk. This piece has quite a lot in common with the tune of Bring Flowers of the Fairest. The waltz contains several different melodic sections, but its melody and harmony strongly resembles the hymn tune. This makes me wonder if the hymn tune was actually based on this waltz and that it was perhaps adapted by somebody else from this well-known piece of music. Just to give you a little bit of context, I'm going to play a short excerpt from the Black Hawk Waltz. And you'll notice that in a couple of bits of it, the melody is identical to sections of the tune of Bring Flowers of the Fairest. So in several respects, that tune is very alike in character in terms of its harmony and its melody to the hymn tune and as you've heard particularly the last piece of that melody is identical to the closing line of the hymn tune Queen of the May And to the extent that this particular tune might have gotten some legitimacy by the fact that it was being sung by a Catholic priest would that have any bearing on its success? I would think so, yes, because there's something uh, very wholesome, I think, about uh, s- something, particularly religious music, sung uh, by a priest, which would make it appeal much more than it might do if it were sung by a layperson. Um, and Sidney McCune, even though he wasn't Irish, he was originally Scottish, um, I think there was a... a definite appeal of his voice to Irish people because he modelled himself on the great tenor John McCormack and I've heard it said, I'm not sure if this is true, but I've certainly heard it said that he was mentored by John McCormack when he was young. In any case, his style of singing belongs very much to the Irish tenor tradition that John McCormack's recordings began And in particular, he quite successfully imitates John McCormack's very distinctive style of diction. And so you can imagine somebody hearing this recording 
and it feeling familiar and comfortable because it was almost like listening to a John McCormack record. Dr. David O'Shea, thank you for joining us tonight on The Leap of Faith. Thanks very much, Michael. Finally this evening, Buddhists around the world are marking Vesak, some next Thursday and others on different days. Joining us now from his home in Dublin is Zen Buddhist priest, the Reverend Moisen Kodo, Ian Kilroy. Ian, welcome back to The Leap of Faith. Tell us about the importance of Vesak for Buddhists. So Vesak, Michael, yes, is a very important uh, feast day in the Buddhist world. So it is uh, the birthday of the historical Buddha. Who was the Buddha? The Buddha was uh, born about 2,500 years ago in uh, northeastern India. And um, he was a prince who uh, was born into, uh, I suppose, a privileged life, very much like anyone living in the Western world in 2020, uh, born into comfort, into wealth, into privilege. And um, at his birth, it was uh, predicted that he would either be a great leader, a great political leader, or a great religious leader. And um, his father wanted him to inherit him. Uh, he, was a, he, he was the leader of a small kingdom in that part of the world. And they they were the Shakya clan, so he's often called Shakya Muni, uh, which was one of his titles from the Shakya clan. So the father kind of shielded him from life, but but uh, young Siddhartha, as was his actual name, Siddhartha Gotama, found out about old age, sickness, and death, and he wanted to find a way to to end human suffering. And uh, so he was an actual historical person, and and we we have lots of evidence, archaeological and otherwise, uh, that he existed, and he was the founder of one of the great world religions. I was chatting to you, I remember before on the programme, and it's it's worth bringing back is the idea that in many cases there's been a, a transfer over of some of the the ideas from 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 the Buddhist faith into secular life, um, and sometimes when that happens. Uh, the message is sometimes lost or, or, or changed in a way. What is the religious belief? Well, one thing that unifies Buddhism is its ethical precepts, is its tradition of uh, ethical and moral behaviour. So um, the ethical precepts, so I guess I guess uh, there's huge variance in Buddhist practices. There's very many Buddhist schools. You know, if you think of the international spread of Buddhism, you know, it's, it's, it's each culture has made Buddhism its own, if you will. And um, so there isn't a centralizing, unifying figure to Buddhism. For example, the Catholic Church has the Pope, but Buddhism doesn't have that. Christian, Buddhism is like Christianity seen, you know, from, from an aerial view. It's very diverse and its religious practices in, involve uh, ritual, involve chanting, involve prayer, involve uh, scripture, study of scripture, and they involve above and beyond the ethical precepts of, of the faith. To what end? Is it an afterlife or is it the life that we're currently living? Uh, Buddhism comes from an entirely different paradigm. Uh, I often find when I'm talking to Christians, Muslims and Jews that, that it's very difficult to explain Buddhism without using Abrahamic terms. The Abrahamic religions have a lot of commonality. You know, if you put a, 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 a follower of Judaism, Christi Christianity and Islam in a room, they'll have a lot of things to say to each other that, that are in, in, in common. You know, they'll talk about the afterlife, they'll talk about heaven, they'll talk about... Uh, 
Buddhism is less concerned with the unanswerables, as the historical Buddha said. said. He said these are one of some of the unanswerables, and um, is concerned rather with the here and now. But then to say we're only concerned with the here and now is is to misunderstand that we see each single moment as inseparable from eternity. So the eternal and the, and the present moment are in fact two sides of the one coin. So in, in the idea that you say we can't use some of the analogies that we might use in other faiths or religions, um, the, the existence that you are experiencing right now and the, the, the life that you're living at the moment what is the, the how do you how would you define the success of that with the Buddhist philosophy or yes uh, well success first of all is is looking for an outcome and uh, and of course everybody will have a different measuring stick on 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 how to measure success or not so it's not so much moving towards a state of perfection Buddhism to find that successful outcome out there. It's recognizing that uh, the state of perfection is actually right here and present beneath our noses. What's the role of music in the Buddhist faith? So uh, chanting is uh, very important in Buddhism. And sometimes it's very uh, musical and beautiful. And sometimes it's very kind of to our ears, it might, might sound quite, quite uh, monotonous and kind of foreign, I suppose. Uh, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they, they use a lot of instruments. In Zen Buddhism, we use a lot of instruments, drums, bells, cymbals, particularly as part of our rituals and ceremonies. So uh, in that sense, there is a devotional music. And there are hymns, in fact, in, um, in Japanese Buddhism that uh, lay people particularly... Um, practice a type of devotion that involve singing uh, sacred words and hymns from the Buddhist scriptures. You have a piece that you've selected for us this evening. Tell us a little bit more. Yes, uh, the piece I selected was the refuges in Pali. So to become a Buddhist, you take refuge in the triple treasure, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Buddha, we've talked about him, <laughs> the awakened one. Dharma are his teachings and Sangha is the community of followers. Uh, so community is really important in, in Buddhism. It's one of the three treasures. So you take refuge in that. And one of the oldest um, utterances in the Buddhist faith, going back two and a half millennia, is uh, the refuges in Pali. You take refuge in Buddha, you take refuge in Sangha and in Dharma. And this is chanted all over the Buddhist world in the original Pali language uh, from all that time ago. Moisan Kodo, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael. And that's The Leap of Faith for this week. You're welcome to email us on the programme. The address is faith at rte.ie. From our producer, Sheila O'Callaghan, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and from me, Michael Cummins, stay safe and good night. <laughs>